0: continue our series here through these two books of two of the earliest books written in the New Testament. Last week as we began to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we saw this aspect how the gospel, the good news of what God has done through Jesus Christ is a message that is inherently public and a message that is deeply personal. As we turn our attention here to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see Paul describing how it is that people, and we can know that both the message and the ministry of the gospel indeed are authentic. Follow along with me as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil... We worked day and night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And also... We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would send your spirit and attend this truth, that you would sink your gospel into our hearts, that we would know it and that we would live it and that you would be honored, and that others would know and come to know you through it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the summer of 2009, a woman by the name of Marsha Fuqua went into a flea market in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. And there she saw a box of goods that she purchased for $7 that included a pretty little painting, a Paul Bunyan toy, and a plastic cow. Three years later, she Um, At the urging of her mother, she took this painting uh, to the Potomac Company auction house in Northern Virginia to see if this painting might be worth anything or have any significant value to it. As the the auction house began to inspect this painting and began to look for signs of authenticity, they did indeed confirm that this painting was um, a painting by Renoir known as On the Shores of the Seine. And it's this painting that she had purchased for $7 b- bore all the marks of an authentic painting, a painting that had been lost from modern collections now for over 50 years, and somehow this lady had come across it for $7 at a flea market bought in a box with a plastic cow and a Paul Bunyan doll. Three days before the, the auction, where this was projected to sell for somewhere between $75,000 and $100,000, 3 days before this auction, the auction was canceled. Cuz what had happened was that a reporter from the Washington Post began to investigate the story and actually discovered that this painting had been stolen from the Baltimore Museum of Art. Over the next 2 years, there was a legal dispute over who actually owned this painting. Was it this woman who purchased it for $7? Was it the Baltimore Museum of Art for whom this painting from whom this painting had been stolen? Or was it the insurance company that had paid the claim to the Baltimore Museum of Art for this stolen painting? Over the two years, as the legal wrangling of the story began to unfold further and further, there were also questions began to develop about the authenticity of this woman's story. This story was making headlines around the globe about the lost Renoir that was found and had been purchased for $7. Reporters came from around the globe and began to ask questions, and ask questions of Marcia's siblings and of her neighbors, and other people around, and details started to emerge how the siblings and, and neighbors remembered seeing this painting in their mother's house in the 80s, and how other people had noticed it in their house before. And then other details began to emerge how Marcia's mother was a student at the Baltimore Museum of Art in 1951, in the year that this, pa- in the year that this painting had been stolen. As these details began to emerge and the question of the authenticity of Marcia's story began to unfold more and more, um, we began to hear, and then finally in 2014, just this past January, the court ruled, due to papers discovered at the Baltimore Museum of Art, that indeed, the museum indeed were the rightful owners of this painting and that the painting needed to be immediately returned to them. There's several things for us to draw attention to in this story, particularly as we turn to 2 Thessalonians, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. One is the nature of this painting. This painting, as it proved, turned out to be an authentic Renoir, and it was a painting that um, bore all the marks of authenticity. Now, if indeed this painting was painted by Renoir, the reality is, is that no matter what people thought, the painting would have been authentic. Whether the art skeptics and specialists thought it was authentic or not, if he really painted it, it would have been an authentic painting. But as they began to investigate it, not only was the painting authentic, but it bore the marks of, a, it bore the marks of authenticity, that the canvas was the right type of canvas, that the paint was the right type of paint. that the the paint strokes were matched, the paint strokes that Renoir used, that his signature matched the signature of Renoir, and these other things that bore the marks of authenticity on this painting. And then the story for Marcia was here is this woman, and the authenticity of her story began to come up, be questioned more and more, and be proven to be fraudulent, or at least highly skeptical. The story was inconsistent it didn't bear the marks of authenticity it didn't add up her brother would say would say had said that this was a painting that her mother had, that their mother had said would bring would bring curses upon their family and needed to go back to the museum and the authenticity of her story didn't add up what does that mean for us as we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 well on the one hand the word of god and the gospel of and the gospel of god is true and it is authentic no matter what box it comes in, no matter which messenger bears it, if it's authentic and indeed from God, it is, is indeed authentic because it comes from God. There is no authentic authentication needed because the authenticity of the message isn't dependent upon the opinions of other people. Real quickly, if you're here and you're not a Christian, don't confuse Jesus with his followers. It's a message that God has given to broken and sinful people who are living out and being renewed in their brokenness and their sinfulness. However, at the same time, though, though there is no authentication needed from us to say that the message is real or not, Scripture and the Word of God and God Himself are very happy to show and to prove that the gospel indeed bears the marks of authenticity, that the gospel itself shows those marks. And it's not just that, but the Apostle Paul, and scriptures as a whole, understands that for the message to be believed, understands that for the message to be believed, that the ministry, that the lives of the people who bear this message are the very things that authenticate the message to a watching public. That the Word of God understands that people test things to determine if they're real or not. That the gospel message is authenticated to a watching world by the ministry of Christian, by the lives that they live, by the message, if the message is being manifested. These are the things that authenticate it. So as we go into this passage here, there's two things that we're going to look at today. First off is that we must bear the authentic message of the gospel. And that we must bear the authentic message through an authentic ministry. And there's three indicators for each one of these things. First off, we must bear the authentic message. Paul lays out in this passage what the, that the authentic message is a message comes from God that comes from God. And he defends this message against the marks of fraudulent message, of fraudulent messages. His first indicator of a fraudulent message is that a fraudulent message is a message that is not from God, but a message that is from man. Verses 3 through 4 and also verse 13. Paul writes, for our appeal, that is what he is saying, our appeal does not spring from error or impunity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, the message he's giving, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, You accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. The testimony of Scripture is that the gospel message is the message from God. It is a message from God for you. It is a message from God and not from man. This issue is a dominant issue in our culture. It is an issue that has a chokehold on many people throughout our culture and throughout our society. The question is, the, the issue that is dominant and has a chokehold is people say, the Bible's not the word of God. The gospel's not the word of God. That's just some men's opinion. That's just the writing of people. It's not really the word of God. It's, not. it's just the writings of another set of, of a group of people. No different than if I were to write it. No different than if anyone else was to write it. It's not the message from God. It is a message from man. This issue is, is so significant that in my own ministry, as I engage with people, as I speak to non-Christians, as I talk with Christians, who people who say they're Christian, they're trying to learn more about their faith. This is, this is the first issue that I almost always address with every one of them, period. If it's, a, if it's a question that if they don't have it, I raise it and I press, the issue, I press this question. Is the Bible the word of God or not? Is the, is, is the gospel a message from God or is it not? And, and why do Christians actually believe that the Bible is the word of God? Are there, are there good reasons for that? Because if the culture is correct, if they are correct that the Bible and the gospel is from man, then they are right In saying that we should not listen to it, and that we are fools for following it if it is a message from man. But the calling for us is to bear the authentic message. You know the challenge of this, because each one of us has seen and heard people distort and twist the message of Christianity into what they want and for their own personal advantage. We hear it all the time, do we not? And not only that, but the criticism against Christians is sometimes valid, that Christians pick and choose what they want to believe. And if someone is looking at this message they say, well, you pick and choose what you want to believe. Why should I listen to whatever selection you came up with today? It's just a message from man, just your personal selection of it. Why should I bother? But the marks of the authentic message is that it's a message that comes from God. What makes this worse is that Christians, oftentimes, sometimes, intentionally, even though they know the authentic gospel message, distort it and twist it. Try to improve upon it, make it more palatable for people today. It's just a question that we need to ask ourselves. Is the message that you bear the authentic message? Or have you twisted it? Is, is the message that you bear the authentic message of the Word of God? That it hasn't been twisted or distorted by you or by anybody else. As a church, this is our commitment in our preaching, in our teaching, in our ministries, is that we are committed to teaching the Word of God, not to teaching some man or this man's opinion. That the authentic message of the Gospel, the Word of God, is an ancient, unchanging truth that continues to change lives in our ever-changing world. But it is an unchanging truth that is changing lives today. And since this message comes from God, since the authentic message is a message from God, neither myself, neither I, nor we, nor you, nor anyone else, nobody has the right nor the authority to change God's message. And the marks of the authentic message is that it's a message from God, and a fraud is a message that comes from man. Secondly, another indicator, a mark of a fraudulent message, is that it's a message for money. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, and also 9 through 10. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul is saying, though we could have, though you could have said that you should support us because we're an apostle of Christ. Paul says we don't do that. 9 through 10. For you remember, brothers. Our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. The accusation seemingly against Paul at this point was that he came into Thessalonica scheming for money, that he was scamming for money, and as soon as he got some, he bolted town. I don't think the challenge for us here in St. Mary's County is really all that different as an accusation. Recently, a survey was done for people living south of Hollywood in St. Mary's County. So we draw a line across the county from Hollywood South. And those that do not attend church or non-attenders list one of their reasons. For 68% identify as a reason for not attending church that religion is too focused on money. 68% of people living south of Hollywood here in St. Mary's County. Now, the reality is is that money is a challenge. On the one hand, money is needed in order to make ministry happen. At the same time, the message of Christianity and the gospel isn't about money. That the church and Christians are not trying to sell good news like everybody else in the world is trying to sell good news. If you buy these health food products, if you buy these health items, then you will have the fountain of youth and you will never get old. If you pay me for your spiritual needs, you will be blessed for all eternity. Absolutely not. You can't buy heaven. You can't buy eternal life. You can't buy a relationship with God. The message has nothing to do with it. Indeed, this was one of the issues in the Reformation in in the 16th century when Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation. One of the issues there was the selling of indulgences. Now, personally, I have never been to Rome. I have never seen the Sistine Chapel. I hope to get there and see it one day to see... Uh, you know, just the beauty of what Michelangelo did. But the other thing that stood out for those of you who have been there and have seen it is that the whole Sistine Chapel was built through the payment of indulgences. Is that the, 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 the priesthood, the church, was saying, if you pay us money, and by the way, we're going to build this project, the cost just went up, if you pay us money... Then you will have your sins forgiven, and your time in purgatory will get, get reduced. And that was the specific fundraising plan for what is now for, for the building of the Sistine Chapel, and that's how it was funded and paid for. And Martin Luther came by, and he said, "Absolutely not. The message of God is not about money, and God's not in debt to you. He doesn't need your money. He's not. You're not trying to buy him off. You can't buy him off. The message isn't about money. And we see the Apostle Paul rightly holding this tension." Of that money being the, the kind of way like the blood flow that makes things happen. But the message not being about money. And Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, he says, you know I'm not after your money. You know that I labored day and night, that we toiled, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. We worked, we earned our money, and... While doing that, we also proclaimed you the gospel two separate things. Indeed, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul gets into this further, and he says, Listen, we're not about money. We didn't even take any food from any one of you. We wouldn't even have you give us a meal, because we don't want there to be any confusion about whether this message is about a message from God or a message from man of people seeking to get money for the message. But what did Paul do? Is that he labored day and night, most likely as a, as a tent maker there in Thessalonica, In Paul, you know, he did that. Why? So as not to confuse the message with this this false message of the gospel for money. But Paul alludes to here that it would have been appropriate for him to receive compensation. And in other letters, Paul expressly states that it's appropriate for him or ministers of the gospel to receive compensation. But here in Thessalonica, Paul is adamant to not confuse money with the message which is why he refused any sort of support from them, to make it perfectly clear. At the same time, the Apostle Paul was being financially supported by the church in Philippi and also the church in Antioch, and he wrote the letter to the Romans as a fundraising letter, saying to them, and you can read this in the middle of the book of Romans, Paul says, I write this letter to you so that when I come, you can send me on my way to Gaul, to Spain. That he's saying, we want you to support me in this work. Well, what is the tension that Paul is, how does Paul work through this tension? And of course, there's many implications here for missions and for church planning that we're not going to get into here today. But Paul's point is this, is that God's not after your wallet, but he is after your worship. And those of you who do give, you should give not to get something from God, but to give, like the Philippians, joyfully and cheerfully because the message changed your life and you want others to know it too. It's what we see here today as we send Sherry and Tracy, our current, the, the mission team that's leading right now as a church, why we encourage people to support that over and above their tithes and offerings. To give that, why? Because you're benefiting from it because we're telling you to? No. But because your life has been changed by the gospel, and if your life has been changed, then you want other people to know that too. And, any, and at any point that that was in question, the Apostle Paul says, I'm not taking your money. Not all money is green. Not all money clinks. as was a money bag at the time, right, with coins. Not, 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 all, not all money is green. And if there's any question about his motive, he refused, he refused the money so that the message would not be compromised. So, the fraudulent message is a message from man. It's a message for money. Not only that, but thirdly, it is a message for notoriety. Second half of verse 4, he says, We speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. The accusation was that Paul was just trying to win friends and influence people and if that's the perception the message the saying you know his message is not trustworthy he's engaged in trickery he's fla- he flatters you he's just going to tell you what you want to hear he's just a people pleaser i wish the issues were different today again south of hollywood 63% of those outside of the church say that they do not trust religious leaders that's disturbing What's more disturbing is that inside the church, seventy-four percent of people say they don't trust religious leaders. South of Hollywood in St. Mary's County. And believe me, I hear the caution and the rebuke not only in that statistic, but also in this passage of scripture. And, and the and the message that's being if people are saying is saying, listen, your message is not trustworthy. You're just in for this for notoriety. You're just telling me this so that I buy in for some other purpose. You know, in certain communities around our country, people go to church because that's a sign of their social status. Here for us, I do believe we as Christians need to be careful of the the need for notoriety. That certainly has particular applications for me, but a slightly different application, I believe, for you, is that notoriety here, unlike in other places, notoriety is the reason why so many Christians don't share the gospel, why they don't live for Jesus. Why their lives don't show forth and manifest the truth of the gospel. Why? Because people are concerned about notoriety. I don't want to lose people's respect. I want people to like me. I want people to think I'm smart. I don't want to admit that I'm a Christian. I don't want to engage other people on this. But Paul encourages us that we must bear the authentic message. Not to please man or to in fear of displeasing man, but we must bear this message because it is a message from God, and it's a message that we give in order to honor God. These marks of the authentic message that it comes from God, not from man, it's not for money, and it's not for notoriety. Having described these things, Paul then goes on to show how this message which is true in and of itself, but in the minds of people who watch it and see it, that this message is authenticated in the ministry of Jesus' followers and of himself. Notice Paul's distinction in this chapter. He describes it, he says, our appeal, our appeal, our appeal, referring to the message. But he switches. And then he says in verse 5 and 7 and 8, he says, For we were like this. This was our conduct among you. This is how we were acting. Notice how our ministry authenticates the message. The two things here are consistent, one with the other. The calling for us, and the second major point here, is that we must bear the authentic message through authentic ministry. Last week we saw how the gospel is not impersonal nor private but deeply personal and inherently public that if we are proclaiming a message that Jesus saves that Jesus heals that Jesus rescues our lives then we should look like people who Jesus has saved and healed and rescued that should be shown in our lives and Paul identifies here what a ministry that this message is being manifested in looks like it's a mess it's a ministry personal life being lived that is not judgmental but is gentle Verse 7, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Judgmental, condescending, critical, disparaging. So one person said a judgmental person is somebody who thinks they know everything about you when they really don't. Judgmental people just just live inside their own little bubbles. And outside of the church here in St. Mary's County, 68% of those who don't attend church, say that religious people in St. Mary's County are too judgmental. And again, the number is higher for those inside of the church. It means we've got a problem. And the issue of Christians being judgmental is something that Christians love to justify. And the way Christians justify it is to say, well, I'm just speaking the truth. You know, it is unloving for me not to speak the truth to you. That's not what Scripture says. It says it's unloving for you to not speak the truth in love as fits the occasion, right? And so we begin to see this, and what happens is that Paul says, he says, we were, we were gentle among you. What is the opposite of a, gen- of a judgmental heart? It is a gentle heart. We were gentle among you. How? Here's a picture. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Of the concern, the care, the encouragement, the understanding of weaknesses and limitations. We were gentle among you as we brought you this message. And you know that our ministry is authenticated because we were gentle among you. Here's the truth, is that good theology without love is very bad theology. That an authentic gospel plus a judgmental heart equals a compromised message. You know, maybe it's possible, but I have never heard anyone argued into repentance. I was so thoroughly humiliated in that argument, they must be right. <laughs> Maybe it's possible, I've never heard it. But what I have heard repeatedly is someone say, you know what, I was so opposed to Christianity. I was so opposed to Christians, and yet this person came into my life, and they, they lovingly and truthfully and, and patiently answered my questions, and they challenged me. And eventually I came to believe it. That so authentic ministry is not judgmental, but it is gentle. Um, also, authentic ministry. Let me finish say one other thing about being, gent- being gentle. Is that um, the question here, particularly for, in thinking through being gentle, and particularly for you men, in thinking through, you know, am I being gentle? You know, if I ask my coworkers, am I, am I, life characterized by love? Is my life characterized by gentleness? And you think, oh, that sounds weak. And we work for the military and you don't show weakness. Well, the word for you is meekness. It's a word we don't use very much and don't use very often. But what the word means is it means great strength under control. It means great power that is being controlled. And in Scripture, there's two people who are described as meek. One is Jesus, and the other is Moses. And so the question there, is your life and ministry, are you gentle? So, ministry is not judgmental, but gentle. Also, it is an authentic ministry, is not impersonal, but deeply personal, echoing what we looked at last week. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. How we shared our lives with you. It was our, our love for you was consistent. It was a genuine love. We were deeply affectionate. In my own life, there are a few people that God has used to make me who I am and who God has used to put me where I am today. One of those people that God used in a powerful way in my life was, was a pastor that came to our church when I was in middle school. He was, only, he was an intern pastor. He was only there for a year and a half. But if you met him, there were two things that stood out about him. And the first thing that stood out about him was, here is a man who loves Jesus with a fire that burns in his soul. And it just exuded in everything he did. But the second thing that you noticed about him equally as strong was here is a man who loved people deeply. And you just felt loved by him. So much so that when you talked to him and you got to know him, that even for not very long, your response to that would be like, this guy really cares about me. This guy knows me. This guy is striving to understand me. This, this guy, he, he is for me. Do you know what? I want to know what he has to say. I, I, I want to listen to what he has to say. Why did it create that? Because his ministry was personal. It was filled with love and gentleness and genuineness that he showed towards people, and that authenticated the message and made people long to hear the message that he had to give them. Jesus, too, knew this well. He said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The gospel frees us to love others, not for our sake, but for theirs. It frees us to be known and to know other people without fear, to know that God loves me and that God knows me, and that now I can know and love other people. What this means for you is that your life matters. Your life authenticates the gospel message. The life you live, the love that you share, is an authentication of the message of the gospel. Your personal ministry, how it is manifested in your life, authenticates the gospel to the watching world. So I know that all of you went through and asked your coworkers the question, if they, how they thought of you being a Christian last week. Well, if you haven't, here's a follow-up question for that. Is to, and by the way, I did get an email from someone who emailed me on Monday. said, I, I, I did what you said. I asked my coworkers. They, went, they said, you know, what, what do you think of my faith? What do you think of, what I, of, of how I live my life? You can ask me later what they said. Um, <laughs> um, but here's, here's the second question. What you say is this. Is would you characterize me as a loving person? Would you, would you characterize me as someone who, who is gentle? As someone who is meek? Do I bear the meekness of Moses and of Jesus? You will not say that, but, but do I bear that as something to consider? And the genuine ministry is one that is gentle and also personal, person-to-person, person-to-person ministry. Thirdly, that the authentic ministry is not generalized but is particular. Notice Paul's attention here in verses 11 and 12. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. As a father, we exhorted each one of you. What is Paul's focus in pulling a father as an example of his ministry? Paul does not focus on the authority and the respect and the totalitarian rule that was so often present in Greek families at the time. What Paul focuses on, he says, listen, we were like a father among you with his children, exhorting each one of you. The focus is on his teaching and how the father knows each child. He knows their concerns, their unique personality, how the father perseveres with them in understanding. How a father will, will journey with someone, with a child, for, for their life, not expecting instant understanding, but progressive learning. And Paul is saying, listen, we encouraged and exhorted each one of you. Our ministry was not this generalized broadcast— But it was a person-to-person ministry being lived out in your life. And we charged each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. To each person coming along saying, what is your hang-up? Where do you need to grow? How do you need to walk? How can we help you understand? And Paul's particular person-to-person ministry was a picture of God's love and of, his, of God's love and his pursuit, that God is not distant, that he is not removed, that he is not far off, but that he comes to each one of us. He comes to each particular person to bring his hope and love. And the authentic, an authentic ministry is not generalized, but particular. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, or maybe you're a Christian and you're a jaded Christian, and Maybe your experience of Christians and Christianity is the opposite of everything that I've said so far. That your experience of Christians is that they are judgmental, that they give this broadcast thing, they don't really care about you, they don't really want to get to know you, they're just more interested about saying what they have to say so that they can check their box as opposed to actually getting to know you and love you. Maybe your experience of the church is indeed that the church is judgmental, that it's all about money, that it's just the opinions and messages of men. Maybe that's been your experience, and if it is, I am sorry. And, and I apologize. And I apologize for those experiences. And it is not infrequent that I find myself apologizing for the things that Christians have done or have done in the name of Jesus that have compromised the ministry and the message of the authentic gospel. But I would, ask, if, that, and if that is you, I apologize to you. But I would ask you here this morning. That at least for a moment, you would put aside your experience with the compromised ministry of Christians and hear his message. And hear the message from God that God God loves you. That he has loved you long before you ever thought of him. That God knows you. That he knows you and that he loves you. He knows you personally. And he knows your life and he knows your pain and he knows your brokenness and he knows your sinfulness and your guilt and your shame and your struggles and he knows your heartaches. And here, hear that this God who knows you and who loves you became a man in the person of Jesus in real history, dying on a real cross and rising from a real grave, taking the brokenness and the sinfulness of the world upon himself so that he would make all things new. And that renewal begins today through a relationship with him. And maybe you hear that. And maybe you say, yeah, that's nice, but you know, I, I don't believe that to be true. That's just the message of men. Let me ask you this. Maybe you don't believe it to be true, but I bet that there is a significant part of you that at the least yearns for it to be true. That at the least longs for it to be true. That yes, there really is a God who knows you, who loves you, who has given himself for you so that you can not only have your brokenness begin to be put back together, but that you could live in a relationship with the living God. And friend, because it is the word of God, it is authentic and true whether you believe it to be or not. Its truthfulness isn't dependent upon your opinion. But you see, there is great joy for those who do turn and believe in this authentic message. And even as I say that, you say, well, you know, I've got these doubts and questions, and I I invite you, this is a personal invitation from me to you, is to say, let's inspect the authenticity of this message together. You can email the church office, you can email me, you can contact us and say, I'd like to inspect the authenticity. And we can get together and go through that, and I can show you some stuff, and you can read some stuff for your own, and at the end of it, you say, you know what, I think this is a bunch of junk. I think the whole thing's a fraud. Okay, at least you'll be a little bit more educated while you hold to that opinion. B- but I invite you to inspect for yourself the authenticity of the message in and of itself. And for those of us here who are Christians, God has given us and called us to bear the authentic message And for this authentic message to be authenticated to a watching world through ministry. May our message, and yes, even more so, may our ministry be authentic and show this world who Jesus is. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, we do pray that you would work your truth into our lives and into our hearts. Father, that this gospel message, this authentic message, Lord, would be manifested in our lives, in our speech, in our gentleness, in our love and care and concern for individual people. And Father, I do pray for those here who do not know you, who don't trust you, who don't think the message is true, who think it's a fraud. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit and speak to them individually. or that your spirit would work in their heart to know that you are real and that your gospel is true, and that it is authentic. And Lord, we pray that you would do this so that this community, and yea, even the world, would know that you are God, and that you are a redeemer and rescuer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord's gentle and deeply personal and particular message to each of us now dwell in our hearts, our minds, and our souls as we continue to worship him. Let us rise and sing to the Lord.